Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alva. And I'm Stephen. And on this episode of the New Statesman podcast, we discuss the crony coronavirus contracts and you ask us what's going on in the SNP. One of the main criticisms dogging the government throughout the pandemic have been allegations of cronyism over the contracts that they've awarded to companies to do some of the pandemic response work. So, you know, procuring PPE is one example. And also the appointments of certain people into positions leading on those policies. One of the main examples being Dido Harding, the Tory peer, being in charge of test and trace. So there's been these allegations of cronyism for a while, and they have been accused of being a chumocracy. And Labour have tried to go big on this a number of times to try and use this attack line to to expose the government's weak spots. And and you recently interviewed Rachel Reeves, didn't you, Alva, who's kind of heading this theme for the Labour Party? Yeah, so she has just delivered a a big speech on exactly as you say, Anush, this alleged cronyism in the handing out of government coronavirus contracts. So we're recording on Monday afternoon. She's made a big intervention highlighting that Labour has made various freedom of information requests and calculated that roughly £2 billion has been spent on these so-called crony contracts. So contracts to do with coronavirus handed to people with either personal or financial links to the Conservative Party. You know, in many cases, people will know from the news that has amounted to face masks and PPE that have never been used because they were faulty. You know, a jeweler's in New York or a pest control firm or Ianda Capital, sort of a sort of random finance company making masks that were that turned out to be faulty. So she's made a big intervention on that, but also she is unveiling what what a Labour government would do differently. So unveiling their new policy that Labour would hold the biggest, they're calling it insourcing, which isn't a phrase I've ever heard before, but sort of the biggest wave of bringing services back in-house for a generation, which has landed really well. Certainly on the left, it's seen as, I saw Owen Jones, so prominent commentator on the left saying more of this please it's seen as the kind of radical policy intervention that people want to see from the Labour Party and they've also announced some other things around that you mentioned cronyism around personal links and and even the government's anti-corruption champion 
is um, a Tory MP married to Dido Harding. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a sort of, they're announcing a new independent, they, they would introduce a new independent person to take on that role. They would expand the Freedom of Information Act to include private companies which hold public sector contracts. So it's sort of this this big intervention from Rachel Reeves. And as you say, Anush, I have interviewed her. It's coming out later today, so it should people should be able to read it by the time the podcast is out. But her government outsourcing has kind of become her big political passion, but also more generally about her return to the top of Labour politics, because of course she was one of the the most senior people under Ed Miliband's leadership of the Labour Party. And then she moved to the back benches when Jeremy Corbyn became Labour leader. So it was interesting sort of to hear her reflections on her time as Shadow Work and Pensions Secretary under Ed Miliband, but also what she learned on the back benches. And then also, I think it's sort of worth noting quite how quite how important and worth listening to she is in terms of you know, if you take an interest in what Labour is doing and Labour strategy going forward because her role in Keir Starmer's Labour is shadow chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster so she's basically Michael Gove's shadow and you know in the strictest sense her her brief is just Brexit or whatever Michael Gove is up to Mm. but I think she has kind of maneuvered that role to make herself quite essential and she has kind of expanded it to also to take on this area of government outsourcing, which she has a lot of expertise in because when she was on the back benches, she was chair of the Business Energy and Industrial Strategy Select Committee. So she chaired the inquiry into Carillion. She has a lot of experience on outsourcing, so she's kind of seized that as part of her remit. And then, and then separately, she's also one of the people charged with thinking about labor strategy going into 2024 so it's not like an interview with other labor politicians where they might have all these thoughts on labor strategy but it doesn't necessarily mean much i think it's it's worth paying attention to what she thinks the 2024 election will involve because she's someone who not only has keir starmer's ear but she's also one of the people setting the strategy it's really interesting because I've noticed that she's one of the she's one of the Labour figures who is most sort of out on the airwaves, isn't she? She often gets the big media slots and you you get the impression that the leader's office are happy to have her out there, particularly talking about the cronyism attack lines, if you like, that they've been going big on today. And I wonder what when you in, interviewed her, did you get an idea of why, you know, she might be someone that they're, they're very keen on having out there and having a as a public face for the Labour Party under Keir Starmer. What I thought was interesting is sort of how short people's memories are in politics and looking back a decade, exactly a decade, the media was going wild for Rachel Reeves. Mm. I was looking back at all these profiles and interviews and lists of politicians to watch because it was just after the 2010 general election and she really seemed to dazzle the, the media class at the time because she was a former Bank of England economist and an Oxford PPEist and a young child chess champion. She was also, you know, a young woman with shiny hair. And <laughs> you can sort of tell she's sort of described as the brightest and youngest of the bright young things and Labour's bright star and everything. And I think that those thoughts on Rachel Reeves actually still apply, even though a lot has happened in the interim, not least you know, because she she was at the very top of Labour politics under Ed Miliband, mm. taking quite a hard line on on benefits, which wasn't 
very popular, certainly for, for many people on the left. But I think that this idea that she is incredibly competent and, you know, is a former economist, um, she's absolutely steeped in the history of the Labour Party. It was really, really interesting, but she, I couldn't use most of it in the interview because there was just so much. But she really has such a deep sense of the history of the Labour movement, of, you know, it's more obscure politicians, other figures in the trade union movement. She speaks like quite passionately and emotionally about how much that means to her. But I think it also means that she takes quite a long view of the Labour Party and what it needs to do to win. So I think for all of those reasons, I think Keir Starmer appears to to really rate her. And I also think I could tell through the interview, If I don't know if listeners will remember Patrick's interview with Keir Starmer right before he became leader, or maybe just after he became leader. But it kind of became clear in, in that interview that Keir Starmer really thinks that aside from just it being, you know, the key to Labour's electoral success to win back its traditional supporters in its heartlands it's not just for electoral success for Keir Starmer it's a it's a really sort of fundamental emotional sense of what the Labour Party's fundamental purpose is and I think that's exactly the same for Rachel Reeves I think that came through very very strongly when I was speaking to her and so for that reason as well she and Keir Starmer you know they're not unalike in terms of their backgrounds and then how they have rose in quite middle class professions but they have this this kind of nostalgic very emotional sense of the Labour Party's role for working people. So I think maybe maybe it's that as well. Not that that is unusual in the Labour Party, but it is definitely somewhere where Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer come from similar backgrounds and are very much on the same page on those kinds of things. Yeah, and, and when she was chairing the Business Select Committee, which she was doing before her position in the shadow cabinet now, um, she she was very much focused on the collapse of Carillion, and I suppose that put her in a good position for scrutinising sort of future potential cases of crony capitalism and sort of the market principles sort of getting out of hand, I suppose. So she's got the the practice there. And I do think that the Labour Party is well placed with her to have her in that position, making these arguments because she is such an expert in these things, but also because it's something that I think chimes with people beyond the left Labour base. You see it in quite a lot of focus groups or and polling that you read about now. There's this line of outrage that runs through a lot of people's responses when, when they are speaking about the subject, getting the impression that some people, particularly rich people and maybe people connected to people in government, are somehow profiteering or lining their pockets from a crisis. And you know that in general, the public hates the idea of public money being misused or or poorly spent. And the fact that it is being spent on some of these contracts, and you mentioned some of them, Alva, that didn't work out, you know, one of the biggest ones being the Iander Capital PPE contract. So that that's a firm whose senior advisor was also at the time an advisor to the Board of Trade, which was part of the Department for International Trade. And they got a multi-million pound contract for supplying PPE, but it's their masks were wrong, weren't they? So they couldn't be used for their original purpose. So you do get these weird cases of the jewellery designers and the pest controllers and the bouncy castle manufacturers and things. And it just creates this image that there are grifters out there to make money from this crisis. And we know from the polling and we know from the focus groups that the public really, really hates the idea of that. So in a way, it, it's something that Labour can can use to try and pinpoint the way that public money is being misspent that captures people's imagination because it's quite difficult to speak about big government contractors and these, you know, these companies that 
you may never have heard of until they're on the brink of collapse like Carillion. It's quite difficult to talk about those and get people interested, but I suppose because of this, these links to the pandemic and these links to sort of certain figures in government, it is something that chimes sort of outside of the bubble of Westminster politics, particularly when, you know, people have experienced firsthand the test and trace system not working or failing to hit its targets, as opposed to you know, in-house contact tracers at local authorities hitting over 97% of their contacts. So you can see it playing out in real life, the idea of insourcing perhaps being more efficient or better place to deal with, with certain parts of the pandemic response than the way the government has tried to impose these things centrally. So it's sort of, if Labour can can make the right arguments and, and hit the government where it hurts, it's sort of useful for them to have someone like Rachel Rees, who's got that expertise in charge of, of making these arguments and also of putting these kind of arguments at the centre of their criticism of the government at this time. The fascinating thing is that one of the reasons why Rachel Rees was appointed is not she's aligned with Keir Starmer on insourcing. And crucially, she has the exact same Brexit journey as him, right? Someone who, like in 2017, was going, guys, are you nuts? We can't possibly reopen this issue. We will be absolutely done over electorally if we are. And one of those people who was fairly late to come around to the, whoa, that Lib Dem, that Lib Dem vote number is pretty high, isn't it? I guess it's time for us to pivot to being a second referendum person. Now, I realise I've, I've described that journey in a, in a way which indicates I have much less um, sympathy for it than actually I think from an electoral perspective. I think they were both right in 2017 in terms of whether or not Labour could get away with that. And they were right in late 2018 to go, OK, yeah, the, the jig is up. We now need to have a survival position rather than a, a victory position. But it's really interesting, I think, because in some ways she was appointed as a kind of like, and this is actually the golden thread of a lot of Keir Starmer's appointments from outside the group of MPs who backed him, right, where he's basically was quite adept at finding square pegs for square holes. Lisa Nandy obviously ran against him, but they are aligned on foreign policy. So excellent shadow foreign secretary from his perspective. Ditto Rachel Reeves, probably the highest profile person within the PLP to back Jess Phillips, aligned with him on these issues. But I think the, the interesting thing is in the Ed era, right, she was a wholly owned subsidiary of Ed Miliband, right? She had an important role with a clearly defined brief, which is basically like, go and say a bunch of stuff that reassures people that we're not soft in heavy inverted commas on welfare. She existed solely as an extension of Ed Miliband's will. And then that's why she held her role. And even in the 2014 period, when Ed was a lot weaker internally, she was one of the people whose position was in part tied up to Ed Miliband's success. And I think one of the really unremarked thing, as well as the, the role that her select committee chairs had, and I would urge anyone who does like this kind of thing to go away and read The Intermediaries Economy, which is a big piece of work she wrote on on uh, outsourcing and it, its various shortcomings and, and, and whatnot, is that she won a select committee election and she has like she's like an organising force in her own right. The really interesting thing away from the kind of intra-labour stuff is there's a really obvious name that we haven't talked about when we've talked about people with close ties to the Conservative Party being given roles. And it's someone who, of course, is not, to my knowledge, a Conservative Party member and is, has taken the job unpaid. But it's Kate Bingham, who's been in charge of vaccine procurement. And I think one of the interesting things is you can kind of see a bit, both in parts of the media, but also parts of the Conservative Party, basically trying to go, well, look, it was all fine because didn't Kate do a great job? I think it's just really interesting insight into a much wider blind spot. And you see play out in workplaces all the time. Whenever 
so I'm chairing this commission on racial inclusivity in the Jewish community. And whenever you talk about, say, like, how do you advertise your vacancies? Loads of people say, yes, yes, of course. But whenever people don't and they don't do things properly, they will go, oh, well, we hired so-and-so and they're great. And it's just like, well, you can have an appalling process that you occasionally can successfully ally on, a, on an effective candidate, right? But crucially, right, Kate Bingham would have been someone who a competitive hiring process would almost certainly have produced, right? Hugely qualified in the field, you know, strong network effects. I do think that also did help and she was someone who was able to go, no, look, we just do need to spend all, all of this amount. But if you have that process, right, yeah, well, basically in the same way that any small business and only can't hire cousins, most of the cousins will not be good at the job. Most of the time, if you hire through cronyism, you end up with the rest of the coronavirus response rather than the vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but, but I do think it's going to be interesting to see how. Yeah, because exactly you say, right, and you've this. In some ways, this is in usual times. It's like a rare sort of sweet spot for a, an opposition party, right? In one, it hits the two roles that an opposition party gets kind of judged by: its ability to discomfort and ultimately replace the government, and its ability to improve and scrutinise the government. The fact we have a slightly weird situation in this country where like, there are people who are doing the roles of the state, but they do not have the same freedom of information regimen as other bits of the state, where how people are appointed is less transparent than the rest of the state. Obviously, that is just bad governance, right? Just just in general. And so it's like good from a like, the role of the opposition is to improve the government perspective. From a Labour self-interest perspective, it's good for them because it underlines its position that the Conservatives are, you know, the thing that basically every focus group says is, oh, the Conservatives out for themselves, yada, 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 politicians all in it together, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And it's great from an internal party management because it is a broadly a position that essentially unifies the whole of the parliamentary party, the whole of the party in the country and the whole of the, well, I was about to say the whole of the Labour movement. Obviously, there are some like trade union general secretaries who will you know when they're like feeling mischievous mischievous will kind of fix you with a look and go hey hey some outsourced jobs at the top end of, of the labor market aren't, aren't the worst thing in the world but even they will broadly then go like but of course the democratic problems with it far outweigh those those, those other mm-hmm. issues so it's unifying to the to the whole of the labor party and does all of that that kind of stuff but i am really intrigued as to what extent can yeah the success of, of kate kate bingham blunt that attack in the next coming days weeks and months that's a really good point about Kate Bingham yeah and also just in general it's worrying for the way that the state is run because obviously because of the speed of the pandemic lots of these contracts including the ones that I've been investigating quite closely like the way that the food boxes were provided to people shielding and also some of the uh, free school meal provision lots of these contracts were handed out without competitive tender I think one in a hundred contracts for the pandemic response didn't have didn't have competition to be tendered. So that that's quite a worrying trend. And obviously, it's okay to do that if it's a complete emergency and you're in a rush, like we were at the beginning of this pandemic. But some of those arguments fall away when you've been doing it for a year. And of course, there was the high priority route as well. So like the VIP route for contracts for bids for these contracts, if you had political connections, so you were ten times more likely to to get contracted if you use that route. So that's also not, you know, a great model for procurement and and for contracting people to run things. So if we have sort of fallen into this 
almost sleepwalked into it because of some of the necessities of the pandemic at the beginning of this response. You know, that's not great for the way that the state is run. So if the Labour Party can't keep the momentum up for these kind of arguments, that is worrying. There's a really interesting Sorry, full disclosure, listeners, this is like a, definitely an SKB use of the word really interesting. I think it's <laughs> a really interesting trend in, in democratic politics towards poor hiring processes, right? Because ultimately, there is no other industry, right? If you're like hiring like a new studio director at Warner Brothers, right? Them like preferring Disney's films last year is not actually a problem, Right. There's like a level of industrial secrecy that you require, but broadly everyone's shared self-interest in it making a profit, yada, 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 means that yeah, it's, it's much easier to have an organisation pulling in the same direction. Whereas politicians' offices, the senior teams of political parties, the political teams of Downing Street will always be inclined towards a degree of, oh, these, these people have known each other for 10 years or oh, these people all got elected in the same intake, or oh, these people were all like working at the CRD at the same time or the IPPR at the same time, because politics has to be based on trust in a way that is hard to replace simply by it being based on qualification. The problem is, is this then I think almost always bleeds into people going, well, that's how I've staffed Downing Street, and that's worked okay in heavy inverted commas. So why not do the same in a, a wider scale? Because broadly that process, and again, I do think this also plays itself out across large chunks of the economy, right? You will always you will always end up with a couple of Kate Binghams from that process, right? You will always end up with like qualified people who happen to be ambiently around if you do a kind of, you know, not not very well thought through approach. And then in some of those cases you will actually get the direct benefit, right? In the in terms of the specifics of that role, right? If you were to draw up the shortlist, they've hired one of the people who would have been on it. And the benefit of that, yeah, people do underestimate the benefit of network effects. It's one of the reasons why leaving the single market is a mistake. That proximity of people being able to go, hey, it's so-and-so, you need to do X, is like a reason to hire someone. But in political parties, those reasons are always already so uh, over-indexed. And I suspect the other problem for Labour in terms of getting a campaign on this going is that um, you can see that effect across the Labour Party, right? across parliamentary offices, across people's teams. Yeah, kind of like, why is this person there? Oh, because I know them from X. Mm. So I think one of the reasons why, because we often get asked questions about why, why we think this hasn't cut through. I think one of them is that people basically just think, oh, well, they're all at it. And actually part of, mm-hmm. part of that is that is true. But it, it is just different, you know, to have a hiring process for, oh, you know, I'm an embattled cabinet minister and I need a spad who's going to go around Whitehall briefing against my enemies and making sure I don't get sacked. That one, ultimately, you are hiring on a bunch of things that aren't competence related. You kind of need them to be competent, but you de- but the difficulty is it's actually hard to prioritise that. And it then does create this weird incentive where people feel unable to go, yeah, you need to knock that off because that's not whatever. Yeah, that person isn't competent. But also almost everyone at the top of politics has been semi-rewarded for running bad hiring processes already. And I don't really know how you can break that that cycle. But I do think the the speech today does come up with some really interesting ways that you would be able to like try and grandfather in a bit more transparency. I think that is such an interesting point, Stephen, especially when you think about it in terms of the main proponents of this quote-unquote cronyistic approach in the government at the moment. So I suppose Matt Hancock, as health secretary, is mates with Dido Harding because they are both 
jockeys and into that kind of thing. He is also a real Cameroon. And one of the things about the David Cameron era, I suppose, is quite how much that was defined by, as you say, the the currency of loyalty and friendship, that when it worked, it worked because so many of those people were friends going back decades. They would all have pizza on a Sunday night and talk about the future of the Conservative Party and what they could learn from Tony Blair and how they would reform that party and, and win again. And, you know, they're all godparents to each other's children. They would spend weekends together and they would, you know, they added people on while they were, you know, once David Cameron was elected, while they were in opposition and in government. But it was that kind of, that was a core group of people who not only shared the same political ideas, but who, who were friends and were very personally loyal to each other. And that was part of why it worked until it didn't work, which was obviously the quite personal betrayal of Michael Gove of that inner circle of trust by coming out in support of Brexit but things a bit like that and the benefits of loyalty and so on go across politics but I I think that the Cameron era is our example of that and Matt Hancock is is a product of that thinking in a way he is particularly defined by that kind of approach and even over the summer it's really it's funny to me because Rachel Reeves and Matt Hancock were both trainee graduate economists at the Bank of England at the same time when Rachel Reeves had first been elected to parliament there's an interview with her where someone asks her about another you know that other new intake rising star Matt Hancock Mm -hmm. and and you know and and like on how they get on (laughs) this is just this quote where she's like we get, we get on fine. We have very different politics. <laughs> and it just is sort of funny to me that they're the, the, they're the, like, the two figures on either side of this debate. I suppose the, on the question of, of how Labour can own this, given the context of, you know, lo- probably lots of members of the public thinking that this, in a time of emergency, you probably, you do take a gamble and some contracts don't work out. You know, the challenge for Labour is that Kate Bingham thing of being like, well, the thing with gambling on vaccines was very different to gambling on PPE contracts. Mm. And the thing I think that should bolster Labour if this works is that Rachel Rees really does have fully formed thoughts on this. Like she had really extensive insight and experience and views on the failings of a system of of outsourcing long before this was an issue from as Stephen was saying her work on the everyday economy a pamphlet that she wrote while she was on the back benches from chairing the select committee from leading the inquiry into Karelian so I think that there's a real depth there which comes across whenever she talks about it and and you would you would think comes across even in short broadcast rounds but then I suppose it's just how she, you know she makes the case in the interview and in her speech today that the point is that this, that, it, that it really, really didn't work, that you really can't emphasize enough how much it didn't work in the case of the outsourcing of, of coronavirus contracts. It's not like a jeweler in New York was given a PPE contract. And sure, it was a bit of a dodgy system, but it, you know, it worked out fine. And, and, the, and these were testing times. You know, it really didn't serve people. And there, you know, there are plenty of businesses across the UK 
that do have experience of making PPE and couldn't get contracts. And it's if you can bring that argument out that Labour will kind of win the argument. But otherwise, as you say, Kate Bingham is the, is the big living example of the Conservative counter-argument on that. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. So today's question is, can you talk about all the SNP drama and the possible effects it could have on the Holyrood elections and a second independence referendum? And that's from Anna in Battersea. So I suppose to kind of outline the divide, it's good discipline for us because Joanna Cherry's sacking from the, the SNP front bench in Westminster felt like a huge story on Twitter, but maybe will have been missed by some of our listeners. So I suppose the big divide is, on the face of it, it's between Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmond and his acolytes. No disrespect to Joanna Cherry, who's a force in her own right, but she is also seen as one of the most prominent Salmond allies. She was recently sacked from the SNP front bench in Westminster, that's sort of representative of potentially different divides depending on depending on your exact opinion of it. So there's a, a very obvious difference of opinion on trans rights between Nicola Sturgeon and Joanna Cherry, which really came to a head over several weeks, but has been has been there for a long time. Joanna Cherry has has also quite openly disagreed with the SNP leadership's approach to the question of independence and their exact strategy on that. But then also, I suppose, there are the kind of the personal camps, the Sturgeon camp and the Salmond camp. And there are plenty of people who, who sort of dismiss the, the trans rights debate as a kind of proxy war. And it can, it can basically just be mapped onto those Sturgeon-Salmond divides. So there is a reason for that. But then there are also people within the SNP on, on either side of the debate who would say that their positions on that are entirely sincere and they and they don't want it to be seen in that way. Those are the divides and they're quite significant in terms of the direction and the eventual leadership of the SNP, I suppose. But in terms of the actual implications for, for the Scottish parliamentary elections, I'm 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 less sure. Stephen, you're writing your political column on it this week for the magazine aren't you yes i am so chris Deering is doing the cover story on the kind of scotland end and i'm doing the london end as mm-hmm. it were the snp's ongoing rows over well actually i suddenly i start to say over and of course like the the thing that's slightly weird about this is that even the thing it is over is slightly contested right because i was about to say the snp's ongoing rows about 
what it should do about the fact that it looks overwhelmingly likely to win a majority in the uh, devolved elections, in which there is a, I don't say stable, but I actually think the better choice of word is consistent majority for independence. Because I think when I look under the hood, I'm not convinced it's stable. But yeah, there's a consistent majority for independence in the polls. Yet, although the legal position is contested, and it's not clear, it's possible, right? And you could end up in the situation in which a court goes, yeah, they have the right to call it. I think it's unlikely for a variety of reasons, but it's possible, right? And it is contested. And it's not just contested in the like, you talk to like a lawyer who likes the union and they're like, nope. And you talk to a lawyer who likes independence, they're like, yeah, sure. Like you get different answers from the lawyers than actually based on law. But basically there's this paradox of, well, they might be winning, but they don't know how to convert it into actually getting the thing they want. Is one way of seeing these divides. The other way of seeing these divides is that they are about the Scottish government's position on trans rights. And the other way of seeing it is that they are about the divides over the allegations against Alex Salmon and their handling. And then, of course, the fourth way is to go, well, it's all a bit of both. I perhaps have an overly cynical view of why politicians fall out. And I kind of think that like a lot of the policy arguments here are kind of proxies for the, the central question of how do you approach getting the existential mission of the of the party. And that feeds into everything from no war but the war but independence as opposed to no war but the class war. No, we can't like, you know, have a situation where one of our best assets is is under this cloud. To people going, no, we have to, you know, be completely above reproach. But I think almost all of it in some ways is subsumed, not in the party grassroots, but I think at the top level a lot of it is subsumed into that because I'm horrendously cynical. Sorry. But this row has like finally exploded into having material consequences for some of its players. In the Joanna Cherry, formerly the Shadow Justice spokesperson at Westminster, has been sacked. Yeah, in some ways it does kind of highlight the like slight absurdity of this like whole period in the SNP's life. In the you can't surely have a situation where like the Westminster team is openly at odds with members of the Westminster backbench and with the team at Holyrood. So kind of, a, of course, that's happened. The question is, is does any of this stuff matter in a Scottish parliamentary context, I guess? I guess I'm kind of dubious than it does, because it feels to me, ultimately, all of this kind of comes down to there's the right unionist space, which the Conservatives are the dominant player in. There's the left unionist space, which control of which is contested among the Scottish and Liberal Democrats and the Scottish Labour Party, but the existential problem for unionists is that there ain't many voters in that space at the moment. And then there's like the centre-left independent space in which the SNP continue to be the only game in town. In another way, it doesn't really matter how schismatic and divided they are. And it also does help, right, that Nicola Sturgeon is popular with Scottish voters and Alex Salmond isn't. So it's not like this is a divide which is electorally fraught for the SNP. So I kind of think that there's, you know, the, the Green Party of Scotland doing a very good job catering for people who are on the left and pro-independence as opposed to being on the centre-left. But all of that kind of means that I think unless one of those forces can either convince people that being on the right and being pro-union is great, or indeed than being on the right but being pro-independence, you're still better off voting for a right-wing party that doesn't want a referendum, which, I mean, I say it out loud and I just think that's obviously nothing doing, or like going, well, being on the left is great, but you've got to be a unionist on the left, or going, being pro-independence is great, but these people are too moderate on issues of the environment, social justice, Uncle Tom Cobbley at all. But I think because at the moment it doesn't look likely that any of the political parties are going to succeed in doing that to an extent that deprives the SNP of an overall majority, and the Greens succeed, you've still got a pro-independence majority in Holyrood. 
I think it won't matter very much. I think it's really interesting when you hear about the Sturgeonite and Salmonite camps now and the different approaches to achieving the SNP's ultimate aim of independence. Because I remember when the first sort of wave of SNP MPs came in to Parliament during the sort of Scott Pocalypse time in 2015, when there were so many of them that they were sort of taking up people's seats. And Dennis Skinner was angry because they kept sitting in his seat on the green benches and everything. It was really interesting to watch because there were so many of them, but they were so disciplined. And this was at a time when you know, divides in the Conservatives and the Labour Party were being reported on all the time. And they were they were they were the focus of the sort of media bubble. But then you had the SNP who sort of always voted as one and they've spoke with one voice in Westminster. And it's and of course there there were divides and and other kind of factional issues within the party, but it didn't translate into Westminster so much. So it's interesting to see how how all of this has now come out into the light and is playing out in the way that it does so in in the other parties who, you know, the media is is much more accustomed to covering in terms of factionalism and sackings and things. And I think that speaks to a wider problem for Nicola Sturgeon beyond the allegations against Alex Salmond and the sort of precariousness that that puts her in because of the fact that he's trying to accuse her of misleading Parliament and a breach of the ministerial code, which of course, you know, if if, if all of that came to pass and, and his claims stuck, then it could have big questions for whether or not she she stays in office. So I think that's the that's probably the one quite unlikely outcome that could affect the Holyrood elections. These divisions have wider implications for her because she's been at the top of SNP politics for a really, really long time. I think she's been deputy leader since the early noughties. And you know, there are these enduring problems in Scotland, sort of social affairs problems like Scotland's um drug death crisis. You know, they've had record drug deaths six years in a row, the worst in Europe. There's some fraying sort of aspects of the social fabric in Scotland that has, I think, introduced a a fatigue within the party with Nicola Sturgeon's leadership. And it's almost like she's been in power for, for a long time and at the top of the party for a long time and can no longer maintain the sort of fresh enthusiastic loyalty that we've seen in the past that the SNP is so good at presenting to the public. I think it's a really interesting way of thinking about it, because when Nicola Sturgeon took over as leader, right, the Scottish government did move to the left, not just because it had stopped being dependent on the Conservatives three years before she became leader, but also, yeah, like it's manifesto in terms of what it promised, moved more to the left. Still a sort of firmly centre-left proposition, but yeah, it moved to the left of where it had been. But this was not presented and the internal handover was neither covered nor really conducted as a kind of like, you know, we've been to Icelandic bridge, we've, we've tried too much to be a kind of vaulting Icelandic tiger in the single market, but not that kind of, yeah, like it, it wasn't done in a critical way. Whereas I think the interesting thing is, is as and when Nicola Sturgeon steps down, I think the next leadership election will look, I think, a lot more like a normal political party's leadership election, right? In the... People going, I'd like us to be more left wing, I'd like us to be more right wing, right? And there have always been those different tendencies within the SNP. But the story of the differences is that in 2015, you'd go to like an SNP MP's uh, reception and someone would say to you jokingly, well, I think that Stevens are a massive trot. And then that they'd come up to you and go like, yeah, well, I mean, like, come on, that guy, he's a Tory. But they would laugh about it. To now, someone will come up to you and they'll say, so-and-so is a Tory. And the best thing about independence will be not having to share a party with him. The divide hasn't changed, but that's quite a different way of people expressing it. 
And that, I think, will have an impact, whether it affects the election, handover of leadership, conduct of the Scottish government. But I think all of that stuff, right, that kind of gradual, like, ebbing of goodwill will have some effect. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shikelian, and my colleagues, Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. You can find me on Twitter at Anoush underscore C. You can find me on Twitter at Salva. And me on Twitter as at Stephen KP. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening and please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall-Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences, as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out. Why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community... Search Disorder wherever you get your podcasts.